0: Amen. Um, Before I begin, let me just say, um, I think I heard someone say 240,000 pounds, like, uh, you know, St. Andrews, are we going to raise that? Um, Can I just say this morning, it's been super encouraging seeing the response at Holy Trinity, because we are in this with you, okay? Um, And so super encouraging seeing the response there of people at the 9 o'clock service, the 1045 service. That's why I was late, because I was there while people are responding, putting, bringing their envelopes forward and that sort of thing. Um, and so I hope to give you an update on Sunday, I hope it'll be an encouraging update. Of course, you know, it's scary raising this much money this quickly, and yet at the same time we very much believe that God is in this and is is on this, and so we, we trust him with it. So there you go. And I'm excited um, about when I look to the future and think about what this will mean for Stack. It's just, it's beautiful. Um, I love things, things like thinking about um, when the front gardens of the two properties become one and things like when we figure out ways of connecting this building to the building next door or f- much further into the future, when we think about and figure out ways of actually extending this building and different things like this. Like There's some really exciting potential that that this opens up. And so hugely exciting um, for what's happening here. But anyways, um, this morning I'm going to take you into uh, first our passage for this morning is first Samuel 13. And I've got to be honest with you though, when I first um, got this passage in our series, um, I went to First Samuel 13 and my heart sort of sank because I have like I've read it several times, but I only had like one verse highlighted in this chapter. And I thought, Oh, no. (laughs) Um, And yet, as I've been studying it, there's actually a lot of significance to what's happening here that I'm going to take you guys into, okay? Um, So here we go. Let me read verses 1 to 15. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3000 chariots 6000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Bethaven. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard pressed they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel, Saul replied. When I saw that the men were scattering and that you had not come at the set time that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I've not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah at Benjamin, and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. Okay. This chapter is significant, especially in the kind of context of First Samuel, in that... If you kind of rewind not very long ago, what you'll find is that Israel didn't have a king. Now they have a king, and this is sort of the first time of battle. <clears throat> Sorry. This is the first time that we have where, um, <clears throat> where this king is leading them into battle. I have some water. Sorry. Sorry, I've already been speaking too much this morning. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Now the the Israelites have really high hopes as to what a king is going to mean for them. Okay? They they say that the king will lead them into battle, that they're willing to pay the high price of what having a king will cost. Saul fits their expectations and that he's like a head taller than any than other men, right? And Saul starts off strong. In verse 2, he sends some people home. Like that's a bold move, right? In verse three, Jonathan attacks the Philistines, and Saul has it announced throughout the land, like we have become obnoxious in the like to the Philistines, like this is all so confident. This is what they expect from a king. And then quickly, thank you. I've got two glasses. I'm, I'm sorted. Um, and then things begin to fall apart. The Philistines come together to fight, and it's clear that the Israelites are outnumbered. In fact, the phrasing there is, is like, they are as numerous as the sand on the seashore. That's pretty scary. Um, like, things are falling apart. In verse 6, we find that Israel's army start hiding. You could read it as though this is guerrilla warfare, as though this is strategic, but in context, that's not. A th- I don't think that's what this is meant to mean. Instead, they're hiding, and they're... All the things that they're doing with hiding, I don't think in context, it's showing how scared they are. And we've got even in verse 7, some people deserting the army. Uh, it says in verse 7 as well that they were quaking with fear. And in verse 8, that the troops begin to scatter. So notice we've got so far. First, we've got some verses that show the confidence of the king and everything's good and everyone's happy. And then now everything's falling apart. By the way, I feel bad for Saul here, right? Like he is under serious pressure to be the conquering leader, to, you know, you're the king. The thing I'd want you to see here early on is that sometimes we put our trust in the wrong places. Sometimes we put our trust in the wrong places. See, our strength, for example, can I just be, can I bring it right to us for a moment? Our strength is not in who we have as prime minister or in the value of the pound, or in the stock market, or the housing market, or like we, we're good at putting our trust in the wrong places. Our trust is not in the money we have in our bank accounts, or in the family that we have, or there's all sorts of places where we put our, our trust needs to be in God. Sometimes we put our trust in the wrong places. And see, there's meant to be a comparison here in chapter 13 between chapter 13 and chapter 7. Now, in chapter 7, what happens? They don't have a king. They have a situation where the Philistines come to attack. It mirrors this chapter in loads of ways. But what's different there is Samuel is leading them, and he offers this offering in chapter 7 that seems daft, right? Because the Philistines are about to attack, and Samuel's just busy offering an offering. And you kind of go, like Samuel, really, you should let us go here. We need to fight. Like this is an awkward situation. And yet instead, he follows exactly what God says, and they offer this offering. It's putting them at a crazy disadvantage, like you know, in in this, the battle they're about to have with the Philistines. And what happens in chapter seven, is that then immediately, as soon as the offering is done, God says, um, he thunders with a loud thunder. Such the Philistines are terrified and they start running and Israel pursues. And there's this victory that happens because God fought for Israel. There's a victory that happens that's so decisive that it leads to a long time of peace. Probably 20 some years of peace. That's described at the end of chapter 7. Like chapter 7 is this decisive win because God fought for Israel. Then we get to chapter 13. Same, similar structure, similar things happening as in chapter 7. But now they have a king. And the sad thing is in chapter 7 is that it appears, it seems as though they don't need God anymore. We find instead, though, that in chapter in chapter thirteen, that they are beat at every turn. the The chapter ends. So chapter seven ends with great victory. Chapter thirteen ends with the Philistines having destroyed every possible blacksmith in Israel, so that the Israelites not only do they not have they have an army of six hundred people, right, but they they can't even they don't even have weapons. So they have to go to Philistines and pay them money just to get them to sharpen the tools they use for farming. And the only people that have a sword or spear, it says at the end of chapter 13, at that point, the only people that have a sword or spear are Jonathan and Saul. The Israelites are not a danger at all to the Philistines at the end of chapter 13. And see, the thing that we're meant to see here very clearly is that their strength was never meant to be in having a king. Their strength was still meant to be in God. And yet, in chapter 13, what we find is at the end of the chapter, Samuel, the one who for the nation is meant to be seeking God, actually leaves and goes elsewhere. Like that's something that's supposed to stand out to us that perhaps we miss. And what you find in chapter 13 is even though God is still speaking through Samuel at some points, the nation of Israel aren't seeking God. They're in crisis mode, and they're looking to their king, and their king is is acting in defiance of what God has actually already said. Like, guys, they got it wrong. (laughs) They got it so wrong. And sometimes, like them, we put our trust in the wrong places. In the last few years, hopefully, we've learned this in new ways, right? If they've taught us anything, like with concerns over a virus and food supply and war, panicking over things like running out of toilet paper, right? I mean, come on. God is stronger and more stable than anything else. And so the first thing I want you to see here is that they put their trust in the wrong place. And I want you to be able to challenge your own heart with that. That when you have needs, small or great, whatever it is, that we constantly look to God and our strength is in God and we put our trust in God before anything else. Second thing I want you to see from this passage that is, is meant to stand out for us is, and it has to do with Saul's failure here, okay? So, so Saul need, knows that he needs to depend on God. He knows that. And for this situation, he's been given clear instructions as to what he should do. He's supposed to wait seven days at the particular place in Gilgal, and then Samuel will come and offer an offering. And so Saul knows that's what he's supposed to do, and he starts off well. He waits the seven days. Samuel hasn't arrived. He panics and decides that he'll make the offering himself. Big mistake, right? And then Samuel arrives just as Saul finishes. That timing is not on accident. (laughs) And then Samuel says, in the key verse here, you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Okay. Now, there are several times in Scripture where there are similar things that happen like this, where God gives a command that is very specific to someone and he expects them to follow it exactly as he has said. And there's a high value on this, especially in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. There's times where, where God has spoken, and, and there's something about respecting, honoring God that means that because he's spoken, because he's spoken specifically, that we should follow exactly what he said, okay? And so, for example, let me give you an example that some many of you will be familiar with, Okay. Uh, There's Moses is leading the Israelites through the desert. And he's like, they need water. And this is for a whole nation of people, right? Like, you know, possibly a million people. And like, there's no water. And God tells Moses, speak to this rock and it will flow with water. Now that would be a pretty cool thing, right? And so Moses speaks to the rock The rock flows with water enough that you can actually, in fact, I'll grab some water actually, um, enough that you can actually, you know, have enough water for for a million people. Like this is a big deal. Speak to the rock and it flows with water. Fast forward a little ways. Hold on. Fast forward a little ways. And the same situation happens again. And God says, speak to the rock and it will flow with water. And this time Moses takes his staff and he strikes the rock. And God says, you're not going to lead the nation, you're not going to go into the promised land with the nation. And you kind of go, "Wait a minute, God, why? That seems a bit that seems a bit harsh." And when we dig into it a little bit, we realize a few things here. We realize, okay, there's something wrong about why was he wanting to strike a rock with a staff, something about how he wanted to be seen, something about how him wanting to be the source of power of authority in that situation. There's something wrong about his heart in that situation, okay? But there's also something a principle here. if God says something specifically that there's a thing of honoring him and doing it exactly as He has said. And here in this passage, Samuel says on behalf of God, Saul, wait seven days. I will surely come. That's what he says. I will surely come. It's in chapter 10. I will surely come and make the offering. Um, and, And so Saul knows that's exactly what is meant to happen. And yet under pressure, in the middle of crisis, what Saul does is he offers the offering himself. And then God says, essentially that he will eventually no longer be king, that his lineage will not be king. In chapter 15, he's going to be, God's going to be even more direct and say that he wants to remove Saul as king. Now, what I think is happening here is a little bit like um, a toddler stepping out into the road, right? Like a parent snatches the child back, and perhaps we've all done this. Right, toddler steps out of the road, a parent snatches the child back, and, and in that moment when you snatch the child back, there's like an anger that terrifies the child and confuses the child. The child doesn't understand the danger, and the disconnect challenges the child to see what the parent sees, see why they feel the way they feel. And I think that disconnect helps them to keep to be careful around roads until they understand, right? In Scripture, when God directly speaks, we find a high value on doing exactly as God says. God's wisdom surpasses ours. God's power and knowledge are unlimited. When this works, the results are miraculous. And there are loads of examples in Scripture of that. Many times, however, we also find examples where a person's pride creeps in and they veer from what God has said. By the way, what we see in Saul's heart here in verse in chapter 13, we see again in chapter 15, where, like, in chapter 15, then finally Samuel says to, to Saul, um, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Catch this bit right here, verse 23. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And the thing is, we we might miss what that means. So let me unpack that for a second. Rebellion is like the sin of divination. You see, our sinful heart prefers a God that we can control. Instead, we're invited to obedience to a God we cannot control. Rebellion is like the sin of divination. With divination, a person can claim to know the mind of God by reading some tea leaves in a cup or the way the birds flow in the air or some dung on the ground, right? There's all sorts of different ways, divination, of trying to read the mind of God instead of actually going to God and talking to God. You see, again, we prefer God we can control, instead of having to be obedient to God we cannot control. Or it says, arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. With idolatry, you can put your gods on your mantle and collect them, ensuring your well-being. We like to be in control instead of surrendering control to God. And so what we see here in chapter 13, but we see it again and again, is we see something really wrong about Saul's heart and in fact if you fast forward think about it if you fast forward in Saul's life this these traits of his heart they're going to come out again and again they're going to come out for example when um, later on in life when he when he wants Samuel's um, advice, but Samuel's passed away. He's going to actually use a witch to try to conjure up Saul from the uh, Samuel from the dead. Um, like, like absolutely. You kind of think about like when you fast forward, you can see that Saul's heart was so corrupted, and it comes out here in chapter thirteen and what he did. But it's, it's only a hint at at what's underneath. Okay. Or as well, when you see him committing suicide on the battlefield and what happened there, again, what you see with his heart that deep down what was there was wrong. And and I think there's something that I want to land on that I think is important for us this morning that we see here in this in this passage. And that's that pressure can reveal what our hearts are like. Pressure can reveal what our hearts are like. Like in the middle of this, wait seven days. Like, you think, why? Why would God want him to wait seven days? There's a test right in the middle of this story. Wait seven days. That's not very helpful. Wait seven days. And yet, this is an important test of Saul's character pressure can reveal the heart. And so at the end of the situation in chapter 13, the end of the situation in chapter 15, we find Saul trying to explain his way out of things. I felt compelled to seek the Lord's favor, right? Like I thought it was a good thing. (laughs) And it's only in chapter 15 that finally he acknowledges his guilt after in both chapters trying to explain away what he's done. See, the pressure of a situation can reveal our hearts. Sometimes we have moments that shine a light on what's happening deep in our hearts, and and sometimes we don't like to see what's there. And the way that we respond to those moments is significant. Saul's response is to say, no, 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 I'm fine. (laughs) Explain it away. Instead of having the response of someone like David who would repent. Who and and when you see when pressure reveals the darkness of your own heart, how you respond is important. Check this out. Um, I found like thinking about this is just a fun illustration, but um, I found that you think about pressure revealing your heart. I've kind of noticed this with like customer service situations. Okay, I've heard some like anybody else identify with this, like. And in customer service situations, sometimes I find myself taking a horrible tone. And so out of guilt, I thought I'd try a different approach. Um, my rationale was that um, maybe it would be just as effective if I was nice, right? And so instead of phrases like, who am I speaking to, <laughs> right? That's effective. Or can I speak to your manager? I replace these with phrases like, I just have a concern, or I hope you can help me with this. Instead of an angry, demanding tone, perhaps I could have the tone of a friend, right? It isn't nearly as effective. (laughs) And, but here's the thing, it's also the sort of person I want to be, right? Pressure reveals the heart. With Saul, the pressure that he's under reveals his ego, lack of faith, disobedience. The fact that he isn't repentant and desiring change but digs in trying to defend himself shows that there are things in his heart that are wrong. Like when the pressure is on, what really matters? Um, True story, a few years back, this was 2003, I think. Um, there was a golfer, i got his name here, Scott Hawk. This was down in Florida, and there's a great situation that happened where basically, like, it was, I, I, like, this is golf. He's a professional golfer. I don't watch golf. I don't understand people that do, right? But professional golfer, and it's a situation where there's sudden death. Now, I had to look this up because I don't watch golf. Um, but in sudden death, you've got one round after another, and if someone finally wins, they're the winner. And, and so they're in sudden death rounds for the, for the prize, okay? Now he's got a putt that's a nine-foot shot. If he makes it, he will win, and yet it's starting to get darker as the day goes on. And so as it's starting to get darker, the situation here, nine-foot shot, his caddy thinks that it's leaning to one direction, and he thinks it's leaning the other direction. Massive crowd of people watching, Everybody, like, this is an exciting end to the day. And he has, it's within his rights, because of the changing light, to put it off until the next morning. Can you imagine, right? Like, everybody, people are angry. I can't come back the next morning. You know what I mean, right? Um, Sure enough, he puts it off to the next morning, and he takes the shot the next morning. Then The next morning, he figures out that his caddy was right. If he had gone with his own instinct, he would have missed the shot. He makes the shot, wins $900,000, okay? The interesting thing to me about that, of course, is that to him what mattered is money. And if you look at it, like, from that lens, you go, the crowd doesn't matter. What, What really matters? And so for him in that situation, he made the right choice. Here's the thing, for us, what really matters Because you'll have situations where you are under pressure. And in those situations, the crowd doesn't matter. What really matters? Honoring God, loving your family, living sacrificially. You know what I mean? Like, what really matters? And we need to be able, as Christians, in those situations where we are under pressure, where the depths of our heart often wants to push us into bad places or in wrong directions, And we need to be able in those moments to go, hold on, what really matters here? And to live for God in those situations. Clearly, Saul didn't have the heart he was supposed to have. Certainly not the heart that a king should have. Guys, standing back from this passage for a moment, our strength is not in the king, but in God. Our strength is not in there's all sorts of things we can look to that we might look to as our strength. Our strength is in God. When God says something, you do it. And pressure reveals the heart. And we need to be a people that when we see what God wants to change, what's wrong about us, when we see the depths of who we are, that we respond with repentance and with humble hearts. So let's pray.